Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Cats. On June 25th, 2019, there was a small ceremony in a room at the University of Illinois, Chicago. A man wearing a suit and tie spoke about an exciting new program taking shape for the state of Illinois. The director of investigations is now implementing the Just Track It program for Illinois. The speaker looks very official. The whole video does. It looks like a conference room that would be used for a local government event. There's a lot of beige, a podium with a microphone, and an American flag. This program has made it mandatory to have tracking and notifications of rape kits. He explains that the program will use DNA testing to process a backlog of rape kits in Illinois. Then a judge approaches the podium to speak. Good afternoon. I'm uh, Representative Judge Newell. I'm here not only representing the judge, but I'm representing the victims. Very quickly, she gets emotional. This is clearly personal to her. I have been assaulted and raped on numerous occasions in my life. Unlike many of these victims in Robbins, I didn't have the courage to go to the police station and report my Horrible, horrible situations. The judge explains that this new program, spearheaded by someone named Director Clark, is going to offer justice to victims of sexual assault. For women like me, who are too scared to step up and speak the truth. At face value, this looks like a promotional event or a press conference, even though there's no press present to announce a new program that will test rape kits in the district. But there's just one problem. None of it is true. This entire ceremony is an act. The Just Track It program is real, but it wasn't actually being implemented. The judge who gave that impassioned speech is not really a judge. She's an actor. She has been hired to attend this event, dress up like a judge, and give that speech. And the person behind all of this is the one going by Director Clark. Her name is Candace Clark, and she is a scam artist. Candace Clark has gotten away with fraud in the Chicago area for over 20 years. That is until recently. I think she knows how to befriend people. I mean, that's how it started anyway. She becomes their friend. She invests time in becoming friends with them. And as time goes on, when she's living in a two and a half million dollar house, nobody knows that she's not paying rent. There is something particularly cruel about how Candace Clark chose her victims. They believed she was their friend. She presented herself as a helper, an activist, and most importantly, as someone who could be trusted. If you can gain someone's trust, you can convince them of just about anything, that you are a beauty queen, 
a wealthy businesswoman, or a high-ranking government official. You can be whoever you want to be. From Cast Media, this is The Opportunist, a podcast about regular people who turn sinister simply by embracing opportunity. This is our only episode about Candace Clark. I'm Hannah Smith. Before she was Candace Clark, she was Candace Dixon. She was born on July 23, 1969, and grew up on the south side of Chicago. She was the youngest child in a big family, and she was the favorite, the baby of the family. She attended Percy Julian High School from 1983 to 1987. If you attended public high school in Chicago in the 1980s, chances are you entered into a lottery system, which meant you didn't necessarily have to attend the high school assigned to your home address. And Percy Julian was a hot ticket. That's where Candace met her fellow classmate, Keita Jones. So it was a fairly new high school. We had a great principal, a very structured high school. It wasn't a high school that um, had like a lot of gang presence, but it was one of the high schools that was popular to go to. Even with a freshman class nearing 800 students, by graduation, every single student knew the name Candace Dixon. Not because she was particularly extroverted or popular, but because of something she did her junior year. One day, Candace approached Kita in the hallway and asked her for a $5 donation. Eventually, I think, after she went around and asked for $5, and this $5 was to go towards her being in a pageant, Miss Teen Illinois. Candace was running for Miss Teen Illinois. She was raising money to help cover the mounting expenses that came with competing, photo shoots, travel, and, of course, a gown. And, you know, of course, everybody's like, you know, why? But supportive at the same time, because you're excited to have someone from your school represent something. In 1985, asking for $5 would be like asking for closer to $15 today. And on the South Side, that was a lot for the average high schooler. I asked Kita if she had any idea just how many people donated. I can almost say maybe 200 you know, you don't have $5 to give. I do remember that I did give her something. I definitely didn't have a lot of money, but I wanted her to win. Kita and her classmates were excited for Candace. Someone they knew, someone from their high school, was running for Miss Teen Illinois. And it made sense. Candace was ambitious. She was involved in multiple extracurricular activities like the Math Busters Club and the Modeling and Style Club. Her classmates cheered her on. Candace missed school for the pageant. And when she returned, she brought back great news. She had won. Candace Dixon was Miss Teen Illinois. She wore a tiara and a sash to school. When I say we were happy, like, what? You know, this Black girl won Miss Teen Illinois, you know? So now it's time to make our yearbook. So she includes this picture of herself with a sash and a crown stating that she won. I've seen the photo. It's in the Percy Julian High School 1987 yearbook under Notables. But then the Miss Teen USA pageant was aired on TV. Strangely, Candace was nowhere to be seen. Live from 
the beautiful Ocean Center in Daytona Beach, Florida. The 1986 Miss Teen USA telecast with Diane Lowry from Teen Witch Illinois. Diane Lowry was Miss Teen Illinois that year, not Candace Dixon. I think it wasn't until later you got some curious people like, let's check her out, you know? We didn't know for a long time. So, you know, no one said, hey, we gave you $5 and you used us. No one said that, you know, just like, wow, this girl lied. By the time Candace was caught in her lie, it was the end of her senior year. Kita doesn't remember seeing her again, not even when it was time to walk across the stage at their graduation. Instead, Candace faded into the background completely until over a decade later when she resurfaced just 30 minutes away from Percy Julian High School with an even longer list of accolades. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's 1998, and Stanita Ware, 20 years old at the time, joins a group of friends in the cafeteria at Moraine Valley Community College. There's a new face at the table, and a mutual friend introduces Danita to a young woman named Candace Dixon. So I just assume maybe she's around 22, 23 years old at the time. So I thought like, hey, I got somebody that's a little older. And if I need any questions or any advice, I can, you know, maybe this would be a friend that I could have. Candace was older than Stanita, more experienced. Even though Stanita believed that Candace was 22 or 23 Candace was actually 29 at the time. She said she'd already graduated with a degree in criminal justice. She was at Moraine Valley taking a few additional courses. The two were fast friends. We found out that we live like 15 minutes away from each other. So we've been to each other's homes, met each other's family, stuff like that. Thing, It wasn't anything that was out of the ordinary. Nothing stuck out. Um, she had a daughter at the time. Um, when I met her and her daughter, her daughter was six. And her mom, just like any other mom, you know, she's always home. You know, she would, you know, have the family over. She cooked. I met her sister and her niece had lots of laughs, but it just seemed like a normal family to me. Stanita looked up to Candace. She told me Candace was funny and extroverted. She enjoyed hanging out with Candace and her daughter. She said Candace was a doting mother who always made sure her daughter was taken care of. Stanita remembers Candace's daughter struggling with her speech and Candace advocating for her, making sure she got into speech therapy. Her friendship with Candace was still going strong a year and a half later, when, in 1999, Stanita received some life-changing news, and she was more grateful than ever to have a friend she could count on. That's when I had found out I was pregnant. And when that happened, she already had told me that she was a part of the single mothers program. It was called the Courage Program that was based out of Oaklawn, Illinois. The Courage Program is real. It's a nonprofit organization staffed by volunteers to assist women through unexpected pregnancies and the challenges of single parenting. 
So when Candace offered to bring Stanita to the Courage Program's Christmas party, Stanita was thrilled. Candace was a single parent herself. She told Stanita that that is why she volunteered with the Courage Program. She wanted to help people just like her. The Courage Program sometimes assists single parents with finding affordable housing. Stanita was still living at home with her parents, and she was eager to have her own space. She wanted a home for herself and her son. It's not easy, you know, having a child and you being supposedly grown at that time, because when I had my son, it was a month before my 21st birthday. So, of course, you try to show your parents like, hey, I can be independent. I can do this. Candace told Stanita that she could get her on a list through the Courage Program for an apartment with income-based rent. Candace also told Stanita that she would take care of all the paperwork. All she needed was a copy of Stanita's driver's license, social security card, and a small deposit. Because I'm excited, I also tell my two other friends the same thing and same information. So she got all three of us. So I said, well, what kind of deposit? She said, well, the only thing that they require is just a $100 deposit. I said, okay, I'll come up with it. Stanita was so excited that she told two of her friends, who were also struggling to find affordable housing. They all signed up through Candace. They all paid deposits to Candace. And as if the idea of a brand new apartment wasn't exciting enough, Candace had more good news. She said, well, now we're going to be introducing townhomes. Would you be interested in a townhome? And I was like, well, heck yeah. She said, well, you know that the monthly payment will be more, but it's going to be based off your income, but the deposit will be more. You'll get it back at the end, but this is just to secure your spot. At the time, Stanita was making around $8 an hour. But she found a way to save the money and gave Candace a second deposit. Stanita wasn't just taking Candace's word for it. She had seen the townhome herself. Candace took her by the housing development and showed her the exterior. She said they wouldn't have interior access due to renovations. It was odd, sure, but Stanita had a lot on her plate with school and work and caring for her son. Plus, Candace was her friend. She trusted her. So I'm believing everything. I'm going on this little make-believe car ride. She takes me to one neighborhood and I'm excited. I'm like, oh my gosh, it looks so beautiful. And we walk out and we're taking pictures in front of it as though this is going to be the neighborhood. So then me and my friends are doing the same thing. In the early spring of 2000, Stanita and two of her friends all pay Candace the additional deposit to reserve their townhomes. But as two more months pass, then three months, their patience wanes. Candace is unapologetic, blaming the long wait on renovations. For Stanita, things are still adding up because Candace would periodically come to her with questions about her townhome. Questions about things like appliances. So then she waited like some more months and she said, hey, if you want to have washer dryer installed, like hook up, but they'll have the actual washer dryer in there. then that's more money. Like she found different things to make it be more money. Stanita was already invested, not just in the townhome, but in her friendship with Candace. So she decided to stick it out. And then the wait was over. Candace would just need first and last month's rent. 
you're talking about coming up out of another like four or five hundred dollars. And that's just per person. So for me, she got the most money out of me um, with my friends. They kind of like put a pause and said, you know what, I'll wait if I can't see anything or whatnot. Something doesn't sound right. Candace was becoming difficult to reach and coming up with more excuses about why Stanita couldn't move in yet. Stanita was frustrated, but she didn't yet suspect anything. Then, one day, she gave Candace a ride home from school. And what happened was, I'll never forget, we came home um, from school. I was driving. I went to go pay for my gas inside, not thinking that when you leave your book bag that someone is going to go into your book bag and take out a check stub. She didn't take out one that was at the top. She took out one in the middle. Candace had copies of Stanita's pay stubs from her housing applications. So, while Stanita was inside paying for gas, Candace took a check inconspicuously from the middle of Stanita's checkbook. Then, when Stanita got paid that week, Candace cashed in. So, when I got paid at Menards, And payday was on Friday. And I knew I just checked my account. So when I got paid on Friday, Saturday, I had to work. My account said negative $909. I will never forget that total. So I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I said, hey, something's not right. I'm crying because, of course, single mom, you need the money. I called the bank and they said, we're going to investigate this. I can tell that this is a check. And it was a check that was out of order. Stanita's bank called her back. Her paycheck had been cashed at a payday loan store, the same payday loan store where Candace was working at the time. Stanita called them to confirm her suspicions. I said, I'm just going to try this just for, you know, giggles. At this time, her name is Candace Dixon. I say, do a Candace Dixon work here? And she said, yes. And I held my head down and I cried. All this time, Stanita had seen Candace as her friend, someone she trusted to help her through the most challenging chapter of her life. She was a single mother at 21, working for $8 an hour and living with her parents, trying so hard to get a place of her own. She thought Candace was on her side. But instead of helping her, Candace was stealing from her. We filed a police report, but it was nothing that we pretty much can do. I then went to her mother to let her know what had happened, but she pretty much told me in so many words, well, you were dumb for believing it. Why would you give someone money like that? Stanita was hurt and frustrated, but now she sees the whole situation as a learning experience. It was a tearful moment for all of us because, like I said, the main thing that she took away from us was hope. And when you take that from someone during that time where they really need to get out and be on their own and raise their kids, it it was hurtful. So now I'm at a better place with people. But back then, it, it definitely took a long time. Looking back, Stanita wonders if Candace was ever even a student at Moraine Valley Community College, where they met. Had Candace been lying about that, too? I don't think she was ever enrolled. She could have been. But knowing what I know now, I don't think she ever was. Carried the backpack the whole nine yards. Will walk you to class and say, okay, I'm going to my class. And so she could have been a student, but I, I, I wouldn't doubt it if she wasn't. Candace's scams were far from over. 
and like a snowball rolling down a hill, they were getting bigger. You know how people, when they steal, they get away. But when they get greedy, they get caught. Candace was getting greedier, and she was about to scam someone who would make sure Chicago knew her name. Candace was good at what she did. I have to give it to her. She gained my trust to the point that I believed and trusted in everything that she said. It's 2014. Darlene Simmons, a Chicago native, is working as a secretary for a nonprofit organization. One day, a resume comes across her desk. It belongs to Candace Dixon, who is now married and going by the name Candace Clark. Candace didn't end up with a job at the nonprofit, but she and Darlene stayed in touch and developed a friendship. Darlene opened up to her new friend Candace about how she'd been recently laid off from her previous job at the Chicago Tribune, where she'd worked for nearly 40 years. On top of that, Darlene no longer felt safe in her neighborhood. She wanted to move. So I had to go. I needed to go. And that's what my mindset was at the time. And then when Candace told me, oh, I flip houses, I flip buildings. She had told me she had, I don't know how many buildings with tenants in it that she would help me. And at the time, I not too long ago had gotten a divorce, but my ex-husband had left me in uh, buying as far as my credit was concerned. Darlene had been considering purchasing a multi-unit building, something that could serve as both a home for her and her family and a long-term investment. But she wasn't sure she had the credit to get a reasonable loan. Candace, just like she had done with Stanita, offered to help. It wasn't difficult for Darlene to imagine that Candace would have the financial standing and know-how to help her. She'd been to Candace's home. It was in Chicago's Oak Lawn neighborhood and was worth well over a million dollars. Candace told Darlene that she had excellent credit. If Darlene wired her the money for the down payment, Candace would make the purchase for Darlene. And then Darlene could move in and start making the mortgage payments herself. Then Candace would transfer the ownership back to Darlene. And these weren't just vaguely outlined plans and conversations. Just like she had done with Danita, Candace took Darlene to multiple properties before they decided on one. It all felt and looked real. Basically, what I would do was give her the money to put her in her account so they can see that she had the money in her account. And that's where all hell broke loose. So Darlene, at the advice of Candace, drained her 401k, a total of $73,000, her life savings. Then Candace took all of that money and disappeared. She never purchased a building. She just took the cash and walked away. Darlene felt betrayed, and worse, the money she'd worked so hard to secure for herself and her family was gone. I was working two jobs working seven days a week, trying to make ends meet. And then Social Security felt that I was making too much money and they deducted money from my Social Security. So I'm back on square one again. That money was supposed to go toward a property, not just any property, an investment that Darlene would pass along to her children to secure their financial futures. It was supposed to be her legacy, and Candace took all of it. Darlene tried to fight back. She filed a complaint against Candace with the attorney general's office. Nothing ever came of it. 
I became angry and decided to not let the police discourage me, but I encouraged myself and told me I couldn't let this go. There was no movement, no sign that Candace would be stopped. Four years went by. Darlene never forgot about Candace Clark. It bothered her that Candace had gotten away with it and that she was still out there. And then, one night in 2019, Darlene was watching the local news when she got an idea. I'm Dorothy Tucker. I'm an investigative reporter for CBS2 Chicago, WBBM-TV. If the police couldn't stop Candace, maybe someone else could. Darlene tipped off investigative reporter Dorothy Tucker about Candace Clark's scams. She said, Dorothy, you have to help me. You have to stop her. She's at it again. And I appreciate the fact that Darlene was persistent in saying, no, 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 no. You have to do something. And I'm glad I did. Dorothy Tucker is a Chicago native and an award-winning journalist. She's been at CBS2 Chicago since 1984. At first, Dorothy wasn't so sure about this tip. She sent me the Facebook post that she had done, and she said she's about to have an event coming up in the next few days, and she just kind of laid everything out. The Facebook post that Dorothy is talking about is one that Darlene wrote. When it seemed like nothing would be done to stop Candace, she wrote about her experience on Facebook, warning other people. And recently, she had gotten a call from someone who also had a run-in with Candace Clark and then had seen Darlene's Facebook post. That person told Darlene that Candace was still scamming people and that currently, Candace was pretending to be a state official. Candace was telling people she was the director of special investigations for the state of Illinois, and she was using hired actors as her staff. Darlene wasn't sure why or how Candace was doing this, but she did know that the following Friday, there was going to be a ceremony honoring Candace Clark at Chicago Kent College of Law. And she told investigative reporter Dorothy Tucker about that ceremony. Dorothy was skeptical about the whole thing. I was intrigued enough to go, but not believing enough to take a camera crew with me because it seems so far-fetched. There's just no way somebody is going to actually hire actors to put on an event at a reputable college. It just did not make sense. Dorothy decided to attend the event herself, no camera crew, just to check it out. As Dorothy took her seat in a room at Chicago Kent College, she realized that something very strange was happening. It did not take long at all for me to figure out that the people who were in that room didn't have a real good idea of why they were there and what was really going on. So at that point, I called the station and said, I need a crew. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
In 2019, there were several ceremonies centered around the Director of Special Investigations for the state of Illinois. Some of those ceremonies were recorded and put on YouTube, like this one. It's from February 7, 2019. It starts with someone singing the national anthem. By the dawn's early light, what's the There's an American flag to the left of the podium, an Illinois state flag to the right. The purpose of this event is to swear in the new director of special investigations of the state of Illinois. Place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Candace Clark. I, Candace Clark. Do solemnly affirm. Do solemnly affirm. That I will support the Constitution. That I will support the Constitution. And the laws of the state of Illinois. And the laws of the state of Illinois. Candace Clark is standing up at the podium with her hand on a Bible. Her family is beside her, her husband and two kids. A judge reads the oath off a piece of paper, and Candace repeats after her. The duties. The duties. Of the Office of Director of the Special Investigations. Of the Office of the Director of Special Investigations. There's another recording from an event on May 23rd, 2019. There's around 50 people in the room, all dressed in business attire, all in attendance on behalf of the state of Illinois' new Director of Special Investigations. Candace served as an independent investigator for the Illinois Legal Advocacy Center. From 2010 to 2013, she worked with the Cole and Associates Law Firm and volunteered her services with Cabrini Green Legal Aid from 2010 to 2013. With every noted accomplishment, the crowd claps softly. It is my pleasure to introduce Director Candace Clark Mateshe. With an almost reluctant or bashful look on her face, Candace approaches the podium. Good afternoon. That'd be really great. I just want to say I'm honored to be here today, and I'm honored to stand among you today. It's a great pleasure and a privilege to do so. My child is hollering in the back, so that's all I'm <laughs> um, I want to thank my family for all their support. The people in this room cheering for Candace are not her friends. They are not her colleagues. They are actors. And they have no idea the ceremony they've been paid to attend is part of a fraud. All of the people participating in this event are playing a part. None of them actually hold the job that they say they do. Each one of them is reading a script that was written by Candace. Good afternoon. My name is Aaron, and I am representing the State of Illinois Special Services Department. No, he's not with the State of Illinois. He is an actor. Good afternoon, and welcome, everyone, as we join together to administer the oath of office to Candace Clark. This is another hired actor. Before we begin, I would like to congratulate Director Clark and family for the hard work that has led to this historical moment as she takes her role of United Nations attache. And another actor. I just have to say it again because this is so bizarre. This event looks like a government event, but it is not. None of these people work for the state of Illinois. Not one of them. Everyone is reading a script, a script that Candace wrote. 
Candace told them exactly what to say and when to say it, which makes this speech that she gave at an event on June 25th, 2019, all the more bizarre. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I was not expecting all of this today. I wasn't prepared. <laughs> but um, I'm not going to speak very long because all of the people that came up today really said the words that I wanted to say. And, you know, and it really meant a lot that everyone was on the same page as myself. I appreciate everyone for coming out. And I appreciate people wanting the same things that I'm wanting and looking for justice the same way that I'm looking for justice. At this point, Candace motions to the judge to go ahead and move on to the next portion of the ceremony. All of these actors were brought here to work on Candace's ceremonies by that judge. Or, I should say, by the woman pretending to be a judge. Her name is Jamie Newell. Jamie always played the judge. She's the one who swore Candace in during the February 7th ceremony. She's also the one who gave the impassioned and emotional speech about experiencing sexual assault when Candace was supposedly backing a new program for the state. Jamie played the role of a judge for the better part of a year. But she claims she had no idea that Candace was not actually the director of special investigations for the state of Illinois. Candace told Jamie these ceremonies were to be recorded and then used as teaching tools for the state, as examples of things like protocol. It was that vague. But Jamie had produced events in Chicago for over 30 years, and she never had a reason to assume someone was lying. It was a gig, so she took it. This is Jamie Newell during our conversation about Candace Clark. Basically, uh, what I was told was this was a government official who uh, was moving into a very high position in the state of Illinois, and she needed to capture some protocols on video. And could I provide her with some people to be a part of the ceremony? Uh, That started the ball rolling, and it rolled down a very deep hill. Over the course of a year, Jamie staffed dozens of actors for Candace Clark's ceremonies. I brought in some of the top talent in Chicago. My reputation for special events is over the top in Chicago until this lady showed up and really damaged me a lot. The problem was the payment. The actors were told they would receive their payment in the mail via paper check from the state comptroller's office after the work was completed. A few weeks after each ceremony that Jamie produced for Candace, the actors Jamie had hired started calling. They wanted to know where their checks were. Of course, Jamie was mortified that people weren't being paid, so she reached out to Candace for help. Candace referred Jamie to her assistant, who could be reached by email. This is an excerpt of an email from Candace's assistant. I have stated multiple times, I do not process or issue the payments. I am being overwhelmingly approached about payments. But I have turned the payments over to the accountant, which is the conclusion of my responsibility. The answer was always that some state employee accountant was not doing their job. Bureaucracy, red tape, something or other. But the ceremonies continued to happen, and Candace kept calling Jamie, and Jamie kept hiring actors, and the checks kept not arriving. This went on and on and on. In the fall of 2019, Jamie Newell was getting suspicious that Candace Clark 
might never pay her or her actors for their work. Well, we were chasing checks for quite some time, and um, I live across the street from the state of Illinois' comptroller. So I don't know why it didn't dawn on me earlier in the year, but she's the one who signs the check, so to speak, and I knocked on her door. On September 24th, 2019, Jamie knocked on Susanna Mendoza's door. Susanna's husband answered, and while Jamie was explaining to him why she was there, Susanna approached. She listened to Jamie's story, then got out her phone to scan the staff directory in search of the name Candace Clark. But there was no state employee with that name. In fact, director of special investigations for the state of Illinois is not a real job. Candace made it up. And that's when the, my whole world exploded. She pulled her phone out and she immediately looked up all the employees for the state of Illinois and said she was not. And I just flipped. Jamie is still owed tens of thousands of dollars for the work she did producing, casting, and acting in events for Candace. And the actors she hired have yet to see any payment either. Jamie still works as a producer in the Chicago area, and the actors she hired to participate in Candace's ceremonies understand that she was conned, too. Eventually, Jamie found out that Candace never had an assistant. She just impersonated one from another email address. She didn't just use Candace Clark. She had at least two other aliases that we knew about. That was Carol Thompson, a producer for CBS2 Chicago. Jamie cut ties with Candace in September of 2019. But Candace wasn't done with her ceremonies. She hired different actors. Then, two months later, in November of 2019, Darlene Simmons tipped off investigative reporter Dorothy Tucker about another upcoming ceremony organized by Candace Clark. When Dorothy arrived to check it out, she immediately knew something was off. This was not an official government ceremony. So at that point, uh, I called the station and said, I need a crew. I'm not quite sure what I have here, but I think I got something, and I need a crew now. There was music playing in the background. The ceremony hadn't exactly started. People were just kind of calmly sitting there. And it's almost kind of like they were afraid to move. So they were just sitting in surprise, sitting in shock, and nobody did anything. You know, so I'm cameras marching in and out and stuff, and they didn't move. <laughs> I think they didn't, they didn't know what to do. Of course, the moment that Dorothy confronted Candace is on tape. Unfortunately, we don't have permission to use it. In the tape, Dorothy is following Candace, holding up a microphone, and Candace is beelining it for the elevator. But the elevator won't open. And Candace inexplicably has a bodyguard, and the bodyguard is trying to block Dorothy and her questions. But Dorothy didn't confront Candace because she thought Candace would answer her questions. She confronted her because she knew this was a story. And this uncomfortable moment, at least for Candace, was just the beginning. This is Carol Thompson again. Interestingly, the bodyguard that tries to keep Dorothy from asking Candace any more questions in the hallway, later after the stories aired, he reached out to us and he apologized. He said he had no idea that it was all fake, too. Carol and Dorothy also uncovered that Candace had a history of renting expensive homes but never paying rent, leaving homeowners in a major financial bind. 
Remember when Darlene Simmons went to Candace's million-dollar home in Oak Lawn and believed that Candace was wealthy? Well, Candace never paid rent on that house or many others. She would move in, not pay rent, and eventually have to move out. While Carol and Dorothy were investigating Candace Clark, Candace got evicted from a house. And when that happened, Carol Thompson got access to the house. She went to poke around. And what she found was alarming. As part of that con that she did, right, where she rented people's homes and then never paid them. And then, as you saw in the house that we did get her evicted from, she left behind a printer and all of her uh, phony checks, the blank checks that she used to actually pay people the deposit so she would get the key from them. And she would always meet them at, like, bank closing time so they couldn't take the check to the bank or deposit it until the next day. And she would get the keys and then she'd be in the house. And in Illinois, squatters' rights, she's in there. It takes a really long time to uh, get her out, several months to sometimes years. Candace's every move was calculated. She knew who could be exploited, whether they were a realtor eager to get the commission on a tenant, an elderly woman looking for a way to provide for her family, or a young mother glad to have a friend who understood the balancing act of work, school, and parenthood. But what was the end game for Candace Clark? When Dorothy Tucker's story about Candace made headlines, Cook County law enforcement stepped in to investigate. This is Jamie Newell again. The understanding that I believe one of the detectives said to me was that she was using these to go to large uh, corporations like the Home Depot, Lowe's, and other places of that sort, um, asking for money for these community programs that she was doing. So it was kind of a really convoluted process. And these were her means of proving that she was this official and that she had all of this Uh, you know, background material and everything so that when she walked into these big corporations asking for gigantic donations, she had, you know, this footage. Ultimately, Dorothy and Carol discovered that Candace Clark did not have the undergraduate degree she claimed to have, much less the MBA she paid actors to boast about during her fake ceremonies. And, of course, none of that community service work she claimed to have done was real either. None of it was. So how did Candace Clark, whose cons have all taken place in the Chicago area, manage to keep up her charade for over 30 years? And did her family know what she was up to? The family, from what uh, you know, I, I could see and in the conversations, they were not involved. I never got the sense that the family was complicit in any way at all. They were just shaking their heads because they were just like, why are you, why are you doing this? They really seemed to be surprised when they found out, you know, about all these various allegations and and crimes against her. Um, And this one sister in particular, who they had shared a bedroom together and then she was several years older and had gone off to the military. She really was kind of like, I don't know whether she didn't get enough attention or what. But if you go to their home, you know, it's in a very middle class neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. At the school, the time she was in school, it was a really good high school. So they didn't really understand. When Carol Thompson got access to one of the houses that Candace was living in, but not paying rent, she found something that 
is really telling. She found a book that Candace owned. Perhaps in a rush to move out of the house, the book got left behind. Like a manifesto of sorts about how to con people, how to gain their confidence, how to convince them that you are who you say you are or that you do what you say you do. And it worked. For many of her cons, she knew her victims intimately. She was friends with them. She got to know them slowly. She was patient. She built up their trust in her. And then she stole their money. And I think that she got away with her scams for as long as she did because she knew how to keep them small. But pretending to be a government employee might just be her downfall. Candace Clark is currently facing five felony charges related to fraud and impersonating a state employee. On October 6th, 2021, Candace was due in court via Zoom. After some apparent trouble with her camera coming on and then off, she told the judge she was experiencing technical difficulties. The Opportunist is a cast original podcast. It's produced by me, Hannah Smith, along with River Donahue, Peisha Eaton, Natalie Gregory, and Kate Mays. Aaron Rubin Corney is our senior producer. Colin Thompson is our executive producer. Anton Doty is our editor. The show is mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. The cover art is by Arvin Lee. The ending credit song is Waltz for Zechariah on the album Cholate by Blue Dot Sessions. You can reach us at theopportunist at castmedia.com. That's cast with a K. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.